полевой госпиталь. Стол повернули к свету. Я лежал вниз головой, как мясо на весах. Душа моя на нитке колотилась. И видел я себя со стороны. Я без довесков был уравновешен базарной жирной кирей. Это было посередине снежного щита, щербатого по западному краю, в кругу незамерзающих болот, деревьев с перебитыми ногами и железнодорожных полустанков с расколотыми черепами, черных от снежных шапок, то двойных, а то тройных. Field Hospital. They turned the table to the light. I lay upside down, like meat slapped onto a scale. My soul swayed, dangling on a string. I saw myself from the side, balanced without make-weights against a fat mass from the market. This was in the middle of a snow shield, chipped along its western edge, surrounded by icy swamps, by trees on broken legs, and railroad halts with their skulls cracked open, looking black beneath their snowy caps, some double and some triple. Time stopped that day. Clocks didn't run, the soles of trains no longer flew along the mounds, lightless, ungrizzled fins of steam. No gatherings of crows, no blizzards, no thaws in that limbo where I lay naked in disgrace, in my own blood, outside the pull of future's gravity. But then it shifted, circling on its axis the shield of blinding snow. A wedge of seven airplanes turned low above me, and the gauze, like tree bark, stiffened on my body, while someone else's blood now ran into my veins out of a flask, and I breathed like a fish tossed on the sand, gulping the hard, earthy, mica-like, cold, and blessed air. My lips were chapped, and then they fed me with a spoon, and then I couldn't recall my name while King David's lexicon awoke upon my tongue. Then. Snow melted away, and early spring stood on her toes and wrapped the trees with her green kerchief. From the studios of KPFK Los Angeles, Pacifica Radio, welcome to Poets Cafe. We're here with Boris Draliuk, executive editor of the Los Angeles Review of Books. He is a literary translator and holds a PhD in Slavic languages and literatures from UCLA, where he taught Russian literature for a number of years. His work has appeared in Times Literary Supplement, New Yorker, London Review of Books, The Guardian, The Yale Review, many goes on. Uh, he's also the author of Western Crime Fiction Goes East, The Russian Pinkerton Craze, 1907 to 1934. And he's translated several volumes from Russian and Polish, including most recently Isaac Babel's Red Calvary, Pushkin Press and Odessa Stories. He's also the editor of 1917, Stories and Poems from the Russian Revolution. That's Pushkin Press 2016. That's what we'll be talking about today. And co-editor with Robert Chandler and Irina Mashinsky of the Penguin Book of Russian Poetry. Welcome. Thank you very much for having me. Wow, it's great to have you here. It's great to hear our beloved Tarkovsky in Russian, and yes. a bit in Russian and in English. Um, I had to begin with him because he, of all the Russian poets, he's the one I'm most familiar, even though I know there's Pasternak, yes, there's yes. great, you know, great poets uh, that we will speak to a name, Akhmatova, but he's 
kind of closest to my heart. Mm. Oh, this is also interesting. So Anna Akhmatova described him, you probably, mm -hmm. yeah, as the one real poet in the Soviet Union. Yes. <laughs> she said, of all contemporary poets, Tarkovsky alone is completely his own self, completely independent. He possesses the most important feature of a poet, which I call the birthright. Yes. What do you think of that? Well, <laughs> I know you can't just say, no, yeah, Yes, yes. Right. I, I think that uh, sh she's um, uh, probably exaggerating a bit. There were many <laughs> real poets of the Soviet Union, right. including herself. Yeah. Uh, notice that she's the one passing judgment, so she must believe that she's also a real poet, <laughs> which she was, and very much a poet of, of the Soviet Union, though mm -hmm. oppressed uh, horribly. I think one thing that Tarkovsky represents for Akhmatova and also for the younger poets around her uh, was a living link uh, to the Silver Age. He was born a bit uh, later than, than she was. He was born in 1907. Uh, she came to full flower as a poet uh, before the revolution and then continued developing in her own way after the revolution. Tarkovsky was, uh, was knee-high to a grasshopper uh, mm -hmm. when the revolution occurred and really only became a poet uh, during the Soviet Era, so that may be what she's referring to is that he he is the only poet who maintains the Silver Age tradition, the tradition of great Russian poetry from before the revolution in the Soviet Union, having come of age during the Soviet period. He was not touched by the Soviet system uh, in the way that that uh, many other poets of his generation mm. were shaped by it. And you know, his first book of poems, uh, original poems, only appeared in the 1960s. And this is a man who was born in 1907, right. and his first book of poems appeared in 1962. Has it been translated into English? Uh, yes, a, a lot of his poems have been have been translated. I mean, I've seen uh, some yeah. in anthologies, yeah. but I haven't. The, uh, there, there have. I think, I think there is a collection out. Um, He's very difficult to translate. Uh, the the poem that I read, uh, I worked on it with Irina Mashinsky, mm -hmm. a brilliant Russian-American poet who lives in, on the East Coast, uh, who is the co-editor of the Penguin Book uh, and a close collaborator of mine. Uh, she's a Moscow poet. Uh, uh, her, her Russian poetry is very much infused uh, with the spirit of that city. Mm. And she understands the language of Moscow. And Tarkovsky was a Moscow poet. Oh, I didn't and so realize that. Okay. The kind of revelations uh, that emerge when uh, you're co-translating with someone who is that connected to the original text are really wondrous. Mm. Uh, I wouldn't have been able to uh, to, do, to do this poem on my own uh, uh, in, in, in the way that I did. Uh, it really is very much 50-50. This is uh, her understanding of the poem, her sense of both languages, and my uh, sense of, of uh, both languages mated in, mm. in, this, in this translation. That's interesting. Uh, yeah. You wrote an essay regarding the collaboration of translation. Yes. Um, and maybe you want to speak to that a little bit. Um, I'll let you, I'll let you <laughs> talk about it. Yeah, I mean, I, I just yeah. find it interesting that, you know, you say, you, you know, there's no, like, you're not in a vacuum, you yes. know, because you're not just collaborating with the translator, the other translator, but even on your own, yes. you're calling to the past. Absolutely. Uh, uh, when you're translating a poem, your first collaboration is with that first poem and, and that poet, uh, or your sense of that poet. Mm -hmm. Of course, uh, if you're working with a living poet, that is a collaboration. Uh, usually, uh, if I'm working with a living poet, when I translate Edina's poems, for instance, I work directly with her, mm -hmm. um, uh, and she opens the door to that poem for me as no other person mm -hmm. could. 
Um, but uh, if I'm working with uh, with the long dead, uh, like Isaac Babel, I I recreate uh, a Babel in my head. Uh, mm. So these are short stories, but they're sh- uh, stories written with with uh, a level of craft that I associate with poetry. Mm-hmm. And uh, when I translate them, I translate them as I would translate poetry. I identify fully with a certain kind of speaker mm-hmm. and become that speaker for the duration of uh, the act of translation. And I always uh, uh, work with dictionaries. I work with scholarship. I work with memoirs. I, I work with with uh, every source I could I could get my hands on in order to uh, flesh out that that person that I'm trying to bring into English. That's beautiful. And translation is such an unsung craft. I mean, behind uh, all the the Neruda we're able to read, and the Lorca, and the Rilke, yes, and yes. the Tarkovsky, uh, are people like you uh you know when i say that that sounds you know what i mean and you are at a level of brilliance uh, on it because i've seen i've read well i'll I'll, I'll, I'll defer to i'll defer to ahmatavan who has birthright yeah (laughs) but but thank you very much uh that that means that means a lot to me uh and you're absolutely right uh it is an unsung craft uh and art uh, the the people who who devote themselves devote their lives to to translation, um, the best of them are poets, uh, mm-hmm. are writers. Uh, uh, they have to be in order to create writing in English, and uh, they do uh, take a, uh, an unknown person to an Anglophone audience. They take them by the hand and bring them across into English, uh, so they ought to be applauded. They ought to be applauded. And uh, if you're listening in, I hope you're applauding uh, because we're here (laughs) in the cafe with Boris Draljuk, and he is a remarkable translator. And we'll be reading from two anthologies, uh, actually. 1917 Stories and Poems from the Russian Revolution. Right. And the other one is the Penguin Book of of, uh, Russian Poetry. Yes, uh, two massive, wonderful (laughs) volumes. So... This may be a a little bit of a prosaic question, but I'm curious about it because you are often through the anthology. I see that the translators did try and stick to the meter a bit or, you know, to the rhyme. I'm not a stickler for exact translations of the original form uh, because forms mean different things in different languages. Mm-hmm. In, to the Russian ear, uh, a rhymed poem in, in quatrains, A-B-A-B, sounds absolutely neutral. There's nothing marked about it at all. Okay. To a contemporary American audience, that's not necessarily the case. Mm-hmm. Um, a rhyme, uh, um, an exact rhyme, kind of uh, jangles uh, to an American ear. Um, so one has to find off rhymes where the Russian would have exact rhymes mm-hmm. if you are going to maintain the rhyme uh, to, to oh, make, the, make the poem sound natural. Right. Uh, Russian words are much longer, but uh, Russian meters are um, uh, the same as, as, as English meters. When translating into the exact same meter, r- tra- translators often pad their lines in English, inserting shorter English words to fill out iambic mm-hmm. tetrameter or pentameter lines. I don't believe that's necessary. Mm-hmm. I think that uh, uh, English poetry, formal poetry of the past 50 years, 60 years, has been rather um, agile. Uh, so, you know, a, a poet who is writing a standard sonnet uh, today mm-hmm. uh, has a lot of license to shorten lines, lengthen them, right. vary the, the rhyme scheme, vary the kinds of rhymes that are used, not rhyme at all. So I, I tend to work like an, an American poet who uses form today rather than a slave to the original mm-hmm. meters. Mm-hmm. Um, they just don't mean the same thing. 
Did you learn English in Russia? No, I had two words. I learned two words uh, at a, a fly-by-night uh, English <laughs> school. I learned hello <laughs> and poppy, the name of California state flower. It, it, <laughs> and that's how you ended yeah. up here. One of them helped. The other one didn't. That's how I ended up here. Exactly. Exactly. Look, that's all I know. Yeah, that's I all I know. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> so I pledge allegiance to the poppy. Oh, that's yeah. great. Um, so interestingly, um, you chose to work in 1917. Um, stories and poems from the Russian Revolution. And uh, you said, my aim is not so much to tell the story of the revolutionary period as to steep the reader in its tumult, mm -hmm. uh, to recreate the heady brew of enthusiasm. And also, there's a, a personal connection for you. Yes. Um, when I think of the Russian Revolution to anyone born after the revolution, long after the revolution, mm -hmm. I was born in 1982, uh, it's, it does seem like ancient history. It's an event that is so surrounded by layers upon layers of mythology right. that it doesn't seem, uh, it, when, it's hard to recall that it only occurred 100 years ago, <laughs> this very year. Mm -hmm. As a matter of fact, we have not yet reached the 100-year milestone oh. of the October Revolution. Oh, right. Uh, so uh, less than 100 years ago for some months. And uh, in order to bring myself back to that period, I thought of the experience of my grandmother, who was born uh, two years before the revolution, mm -hmm. survived the revolution and the Civil War just barely as a, as a toddler, and uh, went on to see the collapse of the Soviet Union in 1991, came with us to the United States that year, oh, wow. and died in 2012. So mm. uh, here was a person who outlived the, the Soviet Union by 21 years. So um, the whole of, of Soviet history uh, is just a segment of one person's life. Mm. Uh, and that really puts, I think, uh, a new perspective on that historical phenomenon we call the Soviet Union and brings the revolution a little bit closer to home. Yes. Let's go back into the uh, anthology again. To our listeners out there, this is Lois P. Jones. I'm with Boris Draluk, and we're speaking of Russia, the revolution. Uh, Russia's very much on our mind these days. Mm -hmm. And uh, we're going to dive back into another poem. The uh, Akhmatova, poem by Anna Akhmatova. When the nation, suicidal, awaited German guests, and orthodoxy's stringent spirit departed from the Russian church. When Peter's city, once so grand, knew not who took her, but passed a drunken harlot, hand to hand, I heard a voice. It called me. Come here, it spoke consolingly, and leave your senseless, sinful land, abandon Russia for all time. I'll scrub your hands free of the blood, I'll take away your bitter shame. I'll soothe the pain of loss and insults with a brand new name. But cool and calm, I stop my ears, refuse to hear it, not letting that unworthy speech defile my grieving spirit. And that was translated by Margot uh, Shaw Rosen and myself. Mm -hmm. And her part in this translation is, I think, far greater than mine. <laughs> uh, but it is, a, it is a stunning poem. It is a stunning poem. And putting that in context, Tell us about Anna Akhmatova. 
She refused to leave her country. Yes. Um, there was this huge diaspora. People were trying to get head to Europe or yes. wherever they could to, to survive. And she stuck it out. She did. She did. Um, uh, Akhmatova is, is uh, one of the four great Russian poets of the 20th century. Uh, when you wake a Russian up in the middle of the night and ask him who are the four great poets, they always <laughs> give the same answer. And it's Anna Akhmatova, uh-huh. Boris Pasternak, yeah. Osip Mandelstam, and Marina Tsvetaeva. And uh, Akhmatova uh, was one of the poets who stayed. Svitaeva of those of those four was the only one who uh, emigrated. Mm. Uh, the rest of them remained in their country for various reasons. Imagine uh, having to face that choice: leave the one country that you knew, the one country in which you've established a reputation, the one country from which you've sought inspiration uh, for your whole writing life, uh, and the one country where there is a substantial audience of Russian readers um, who can appreciate your work, or uh, face, uh, on the other hand, potential death. Mm -hmm. Um, And many, many uh, people like Akhmatova uh, chose uh, to risk their lives and remain in Russia. Others chose to risk their lives and risk their careers and leave. Uh, There was no easy choice to make. This is uh, Akhmatova processing in 1917, in the autumn of 1917. This is her processing that that choice and refusing uh, a perfectly legitimate temptation uh, to leave the country because uh, uh, staying not only meant risking death, but also making compromises, um, other kinds of moral compromises that uh, would be difficult to make. Her husband, uh, one-time husband, uh, the poet uh, Nikolai Gumilov, was executed in 1921. Yeah. Uh, she had a child with Gumilov, uh, Lev Gumilov, who was a terrible human being, <laughs> uh, but but made terrible by his experiences mm-hmm. in the gulag. She lost him twice to the con- concentration camps, uh, yeah. to Stalin's concentration camps. He uh, was eventually freed, but uh, uh, much of her life was spent working worrying about the fate of, of her common-law husband and her son, mm-hmm. uh, not knowing uh, day-to-day uh, uh, what they were facing, uh, what they had to go through in the gulag. I think it was to, to her first husband she wrote, after his death, um, terror fingers all things in the dark, leads moonlight to the axe, there's an ominous knock behind the wall, a ghost, a thief, or a rat. Mm-hmm. Wow, that's just yeah, so. Yeah. She could be so concise. Th- that's that is her great gift. She yeah. is uh, she's direct and concise, uh, and yet never artless. Mm-hmm. Uh, that's 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 what's uh, miraculous about Akhmatova's poetry is that it uh, it uh, a beautiful clarity, as mm-hmm. another Russian poet would put it. Yeah. yeah. Did she go on to Paris, or she was in Paris? Uh, when was it her? No, uh, Tsvetaeva was in Paris. Ah, yes, yeah, yeah. Okay, yeah, I was yeah. thinking of the muse of Modigliani. Oh yes, well, uh, she did inspire Modigliani, uh. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, but she inspired many artists. She inspired many many artists. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah, she, yeah. Was yeah. she was a very beautiful <laughs> woman, and she knew it. Yeah, yeah. Toward the end of her life, she really was very stately. Uh, she became a kind of queen yes. uh, of the Russian uh, countercultural literary, uh, counter-official literary establishment. Mm. Um, That's right. They, yeah, they, yeah. You know, things really changed for her because she stayed that course and then yes, she yeah. really got the acclaim that she, she did. deserved. She did, be- begrudgingly on, this, uh, on the part of Soviet authorities. They never really uh, forgave her and never really uh, let her breathe easy. Uh, but uh, the poets of a later generation uh, gave her all due recognition. Mm. So, uh, Namely, Joseph Brodsky, who, um, who was really a kind of a student of hers, okay. someone she sp- sponsored and, 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 uh, and uh, supported, and someone who supported her legacy.
If you're just tuning in, this is Lois P. Jones with our guest, Boris Draliuk, and we're talking about um, two wonderful anthologies that he's edited and tra helped translate. Mm -hmm. um, and we're moving into ahead with, um, I will let you say the name. Mikhail Gerasimov. Thank um, you. A prolet cultist, a, po a proletarian poet, mm -hmm. writing in 1917 about his enthusiasm for the revolution. Poem called Iron Flowers. I forged my iron flowers beneath a workshop's smoky dome, not amid nature's tender bowers or beauty in full bloom. They weren't caressed by southern sunshine or cradled by the moon. My thunderous bouquet was burnished in a forge's fiery storm. Where motors rumble, rude and awful, where sirens whistle, metal rings, I was entranced. I fell in love with the chime of copper pines. This workshop dance was tiring. My palms were hard as rocks, but a never-tiring fire blazed in my chest beneath my smock. Fed by the dream of communism, I stoked the furnace with new power. Intoxicated by its rhythm, I forged my iron flowers. Mm. What a powerful piece. There's a whole section in the anthology on iron flowers mm -hmm. and um, the rising kind of of the proletariat yes, yes. and the faith that they had in communism. Absolutely, absolutely. These were the people um, uh, for whom the revolution meant everything. It, mm -hmm. it, uh, it really uh, threw open uh, gates that had been closed to them. Uh, there, there was really no entry point into Russian culture, into Russian society of a higher level for them before. And here was that great promise for which they had been working. Communism had come. Mm -hmm. um, the, it was the day of the working man. Uh, unfortunately, uh, many of those promises were not fulfilled uh, by the revolution. Uh, uh, these prolet cultists, uh, many of them left the Communist Party, the, the Bolshevik Party, uh, in the early 1920s because they were disgusted with the compromises that the regime made with uh, bourgeois capitalism. Right. And many of them much later were arrested, uh, not much later really, just 10 years later, were arrested uh, and executed. Uh, because they never really conformed with, with the Soviet vision of communism. Uh, they had their own vision, and, and they were true believers. Mm -hmm. yeah. And and so interesting to have a group dedicated to the workers. I mean, yes. to, even in American poetry, I mean, I'm, it's probably a lack of my knowledge, but I don't see a real representation of that yes. uh, as much. I mean... If you look at some someone like Bukowski or oh, whatever, sure, you know, sure. and uh, uh, who who else were there? Stafford and I don't know. A couple yes, uh, well, there were uh, I even in Los Angeles there was a kind of uh, outcropping of proletarian poets in the nineteen fifties around um, uh, Thomas McGrath, uh -huh. um, and there was a proletarian tradition of American poetry uh, in the nineteen twenties and thirties. Many of these people were uh, Jewish Americans who had uh, uh, emigrated or whose parents had emigrated from the the Russian Empire, who had, mm -hmm. who were radical in their affiliations, worked in in the East Coast factories uh, um, and textile uh, plants, mm. and so um, uh, many of these textile workers, um, uh, their children became became great poets. Uh, their names are mostly forgotten now, mm -hmm. uh, but they were at one point well known. Uh, Thankfully, I mean, and that's one of the great reasons to own either of these anthologies. Um, you're bringing these voices to the fore. Yes. Some are very well known and some 
uh, tremendously obscure. And yeah. I think we're going to be going out with with yeah. uh, someone of your choice. That uh, I think we even spoke to that. Yeah. Yes, Anna Pismanova. Yeah. yeah. Uh, this is a, a wonderful poet, an emigre poet, um, uh, who uh, really deserves to be better known. Um, her name is Anna Prismanova. I'll read um, uh, two poems. Uh, they're very short um, in my translation. The Jolt. The jolt must come from far away. The start of bread is in the grain. A stream, although still underground, aspires to reflect the sky. A future Sunday's distant light reaches us early in the week. The jolt must come from far away to trigger earthquakes in the heart. A shoulder alien to me controls the movement of my hand. In order to acquire such strength, the jolt must come from far away. And another poem called Blood and Bone. My nature has two cornerstones, and mother, singing hushabye, rocked not a single child but twins, bone of sobriety and blood of fire. This blood, this bone, of equal zeal and locked in battle from the start, have sealed my fate with a sad seal, forever splitting me apart. Music, is it you I hear above me in the early hours? You place a cross upon my roof and build a temple from my house. Almighty music, you unite this blood, this bone within yourself. I can't be sure you'll help my life, but you are sure to help my death. Mm. What a pleasure to have you on the show, Boris. Thank you for coming. Thank you, Lois. It was a pleasure. This is host Lois P. Jones, and our guest today has been Boris Draliuk. Thanks to our wonderful producer, Marlena Bond. Look for us on the Poets Cafe fan page on Facebook. You've been listening to Poets Cafe on Pacifica Radio for all of Southern California and beyond. Mm.